three, two, one. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome back to Kuma House, everyone. Your host, Jordo, here, and I'd like to extend a huge thank you for everybody out there listening in again this week. Uh, right, so about a week ago, I had a colleague of mine approach me at work and ask me some questions in regards to a interesting piece of tech that's really been making headlines for about the last 10 years. I thought, if he's got questions about this, surely there's other people out there that do as well, and it would make a great episode for the podcast. So here we are. Today, we're talking about cryptocurrency, or as the correct name is, a crypto asset. Are these crypto assets the future? Are they just a fad? What makes them so special? How do they work? We're, we're going to try and explore a, a bunch of this information today, and I'm going to let you make your own decision uh, on exactly what, what the future of crypto is going to be for us. The best place to probably start is right at the very beginning. What exactly is a crypto asset? Well, crypto asset is sort of a blanket term for a new type of asset class. And this asset class consists of both a software component as well as an accompanying currency component. And that's all well and good, but in order to understand exactly how this works, one thing that we really need to understand is exactly how do we determine the value of a crypto asset. As we all know, markets fluctuate and so does supply and demand. Uh, in the sense of a crypto asset, it's the software that is uh, fluctuating with the market, not a resource. Crypto is falls into a uh, asset class that we consider to be intangible assets, which means it's something that doesn't physically exist in our world. Things like patents, different types of software, trademarks, copyrights, um, all these things are examples of intangible assets. But I thought to better understand exactly how we value these uh, crypto assets, it would be more beneficial to take a look at something like a tangible asset or a real thing that exists in our physical world for better examples to better understand it. Now, there's a subsection of tangible assets con called consumable and transformable, or CT assets. These are things like oil, gas, and different types of agricultural products. Um, these types of tangible assets can be bought, they can be sold, but they can also be used uh, to produce something else. Uh, and this is very much like the software portion of the crypto asset. Uh, the type of software can be utilized to perform a uh, numerous amount of different purposes. But there is also the current the currency component of these crypto assets as well. This is more akin to things like precious metals and stones. Let's take diamonds for example. Diamonds are rare, they're desirable, they're beautiful, and they can be useful as well. Let's take uh, diamond drill bits where they uh, have a bunch of fine diamond powder and they dust it on the end of this drill bit which gives it an extra bit of cutting power for um, mostly 
non-wood, non-metallic hardened surfaces. Things like glass, things like ceramic, marble, granite, and so on. Um, now, because of all the benefits that diamonds have, globally we've agreed on a value for these types of assets. Uh, this type of asset is something that we refer to as a store of value asset. This part is more closely related to the cryptocurrency. Um, like diamonds, uh, there's only a finite amount of this cryptocurrency available. Um, so the less and less that becomes available, the higher and higher the valuation of the actual currency will become. Unlike government uh, currency, which they can just make more of if they want to, which then I guess globally will depreciate the value. So when we're looking at crypto uh, assets as a whole, we want something that's going to perform well in both areas, both the software as well as the currency itself. And this is going to provide us with the most valuable crypto asset that we can get. So now that we sort of understand what it is and how it gets its value, what we really need to know is how does crypto work exactly? Well, crypto uses a type of software that's called blockchain. And what does that mean? Well, blockchain is really just a massive digital ledger or a digital database of sorts. Uh, what's going to be the best way to put this in perspective? Let's imagine for a moment that you're going to rent a house and in that house you're going to have three additional roommates. So the four of you have decided that you're all going to split the bills uh, fairly evenly, but because there's so many bills, each person is only going to pay a certain amount of each bill. Uh, you all sit down at the beginning of every month, you open up a, an Excel spreadsheet, and you put down who pays what on which bill. You decide that it's a good idea to upload this Excel spreadsheet to a single uh, online drive uh, so that everybody has access to it. Now, what do you imagine is the potential that if somebody uh, really wanted to pull a fast one on you, they could go in and change that information, thereby having to pay less of a particular bill and somebody ending up having to cover their share? Do you think people would notice? Unless you have everything written down or people are really memorizing how much each person is paying on each bill, uh, the potential that somebody would be able to kind of pull the wool over your eyes is, is pretty probable. So let's imagine again the same scenario. You've got four roommates. You decide that you're going to sit down and you're going to split up these bills. Now you take that Excel spreadsheet and you each store it on your own online drive. What's the potential that somebody's going to be able to pull one over on you now? Not very likely, right? Because you have multiple copies of the original information, somebody changing the information on one isn't going to affect the others. That is basically how a blockchain works. And so I'm sure you can imagine that the more copies of this original information that you have, the safer your system is going to be against fraud, against hacking, against all the terrible things that we want to avoid, especially when it comes to our finances. So in order to understand exactly how uh, additional 
copies of this ledger are created, we're going to look into uh, exactly how in this hyper-secure world uh, crypto is created. Um, I mean, an intangible asset, it's not as though you can go and mine for more, or can you? It's referred to as crypto mining. So let's use Bitcoins uh, as an example. Uh, how is a new Bitcoin born into this world? Well, Bitcoins, all Bitcoins begin when a number of Bitcoins are used in any particular transaction. Let's, for example, say that Sally wants to send Bill some of her uh, own Bitcoin out of her personalized wallet. Um, the software packages this transaction as well as other transactions taking place at the same time into something that is referred to as a block. This block is then sent to a network uh, in order to verify its validity. Uh, so computers on this network, and there are many of them, they're all racing to be the first ones to verify this information. Um, once the information has been verified, uh, this block is then shared to the online ledger or the chain uh, and that new chain is then distributed to the entire network so that it can be used to verify future transactions. Now the miners or the people whose computers first verified the, the authenticity of this transaction are then given some of this new Bitcoin uh, as a reward. And then the cycle just continues and continues and continues. And the block or, or the chain continues to grow as each additional block is added, thereby providing additional layers of security. Uh, you know, a single person would have a very tough time to try and hack in or create fraudulent Bitcoin. And I think even like you know, medium to large sized uh, criminal organizations would have a, a difficult time. Because this is such a decentralized system, uh, the, the original valid information is truly everywhere. So it, at some point in a relatively short amount of time, their fraudulence would be detected and it would be eliminated. Um, there's no single point of entry to this system, which is another thing that makes it very, very secure. And so Bitcoin then provides an additional layer of security uh, through something that is referred to as the proof of work mechanism. So what this does is it allows for the establishment of a total network consensus. Um, and the way it does this is any device that is attempting to verify a transaction is provided with a very complex mathematical equation that the the device must solve before the system will allow it to add anything to the existing blockchain and so once this equation has been solved the device is then given a long complex uh, computer code that is essentially its authorization code for allowing it to add a new block to the chain. It's absolutely amazing the way this technology works. It's actually something that had never been done before in computer science or crypt cryptography before the advent of Bitcoin. Um, which, in, just in case you're wondering, October 31st, 2008 was the actual birth of Bitcoin itself. 
And I truly believe that it was the market crash that happened around this time that was the reason that so many people jumped on board saying, hey, you're right, we need something that's decentralized, that's not going to be susceptible to crashes of this nature. Uh, unfortunately, Bitcoin is something that's referred to as a deflationary currency. Uh, and that's in part because it actually has a 21 million Bitcoin cap. What this means is as soon as there's been 21 million Bitcoin produced, that's it. There's no more. Uh, and so as such, that's going to do one of two things, or it's going to do one and then the other. It's going to drive the price up at first because, you know, supply and demand, there will be no more supply, so the demand is increased. Um, and then after a certain amount of time, I would imagine that you're going to start to see the valuation of Bitcoin drop. And the reason for that is who wants to involve themselves in a currency that they can't get any more of, and especially in today's day and age when a lot of countries are actually outlawing Bitcoin uh, and you can't even use it really uh, to purchase anything at this point. When we're looking at different types of crypto assets, we've talked about Bitcoin so far, uh, and there's another crypto asset that's making a lot of news. It's also a public crypto asset. Uh, it's it's a software called Ethereum, which then provides you with a currency that's called Ether. Um, this this particular software has a lot of similarities to uh, Bitcoin, but it has a definite different vision in mind. Uh, the creator of uh, of Ethereum said that Bitcoin is great as a currency, but its software really lacks the ability, uh, lacks the complexity to be utilized for much else in this world. And so he decided. I'm going to create my own crypto asset and Ethereum was born. Uh, Ethereum really just builds on uh, Bitcoin's innovation just with some key differences. Um, like Bitcoin, it uses digital money, uh, it provides security uh, without needing a provider or any type of bank. Um, However, the fact that it's digital currency uh, and it uses a blockchain type system is about where the similarities end. Um, Ethereum is something that is referred to as a programmable software, which means that with enough creativity and with enough innovation, uh, it can really accomplish so much. Uh, and with a variety of various different digital assets. I mean, you could even use Ethereum to manage your Bitcoin accounts. Uh, but beyond payments, there's digital marketplaces, there's all types of different financial services that could be available. Even diving deeper into the potential here, you could even run apps or games. Uh, and because of the decentralized system uh, with many different moving parts all at the same time uh, no one can steal your data and no one can censor you so is this really the future of our digital age because in in the last few years we've become so much more aware of our security online and something like this would just allow us to have that peace of mind that there's not people out there um, that are just going to be able to access our data uh, without our consent in fact ethereum has already started uh, 
developing its own referred to as dApps, which are just distributed apps, uh, various different products and apps that run on the Ethereum software. Uh, you can actually find those uh, on a sublink on the Ethereum website, uh, and I'll leave a link to that in the episode description. Um, there is also another key way that Ethereum differences uh, itself from Bitcoin. And that key difference comes in the way that new blocks are validated before they're added to the chain. Uh, we discussed earlier about the proof-of-work mechanism used by the Bitcoin system. Uh, and the proof-of-work mechanism really has an issue in the fact of its competitive nature. Um, as we discussed earlier, it's sort of a first-come, first-served basis. So the first one there to validate new blocks on the chain is the one who's going to, re to reap the rewards of new Bitcoin. Now, unfortunately, when you have this more, more, more mentality, especially with a monetary value behind it, um, you have people that are going to go to any lengths possible in order to be the one there to validate the new blocks. Uh, and this presents uh, a few concerns, most notably uh, in, the, in regards to our global climate concern and the amount of energy consumption that we have. Uh, a study that was done shows that on a global scale, the amount of people um, that are mining for Bitcoin consume as much energy daily as some small countries such as Denmark. And when you're talking about sale, scaling something like a currency for uh, our future, the fact that it has such a or can have such a negative environmental impact is really a huge hindrance uh, on its ability to grow. Um, now the way that Ethereum plans to sort of counteract this issue is by using a different system. So instead of the proof-of-work mechanism, they use something that's called the proof-of-stake mechanism. So the way that this proof-of-stake works is in Ethereum, for example, Ethereum requires you to pay uh, 32 Ether in order to become what's called a validator. So once you're a validator, you have the ability now to uh, validate new blocks for the chain. However, the validation of these blocks is assigned to validators at random. So there is no competition. You don't need these massive farms of uh, single pieces of hardware that are designed to uh, continuously mine for massive amounts of Bitcoin. Uh, instead, you pay your validator fee and you are sort of just given uh, the opportunity to validate certain blocks. And if you're not given the opportunity, you just wait until you are. So I'm sure that you can see that a shared validation system uh, has many more benefits than a competitive one. Now, if you want to talk about proof of stake, you have to talk about the pros and you have to talk about the cons. Uh, the one is biggest concern about the proof of stake security system um, is the 51% attack. Uh, so it's a concern uh, when PO, uh, proof of stake is used. Uh, it's very unlikely, but it is still a potential. So a 51% attack is when somebody controls 51% of a cryptocurrency and they use that majority to alter the blockchain uh, however they see fit. Uh, now 
it has to be noted that in a proof-of-stake uh, security system, uh, a group or an individual would have to own 51% of the staked currency. So it's not only super astronomically expensive to have 51% of the staked cryptocurrency, but staked currency is taken as collateral for the privilege to mine. So that miner or that group of miners uh, that attempt to uh, change the blockchain through a 51% attack uh, would lose all of their staked coins. Uh, so the astronomical amount of investment that would be required and the huge loss that they would incur as a result um, really just creates an incentive for miners to act in good faith and for the benefit of the of the network so we've talked about Bitcoin and we've talked about ethereum and I'll be honest with you there are many many other types of cryptocurrencies uh, in the public domain right now there's actually a website that you can check out cryptocompare.com which allows you to see all the current uh, cryptocurrencies available or crypto assets available uh, what their current valuation is uh, you can actually watch everything change real time as well uh, so I will also leave, as usual, a link to that site uh, in the episode description uh, for you to check out on your own. Now, we've talked a lot about things uh, or different types of crypto assets that are in the public domain. Now, I'd just like to quickly note uh, before moving on that there are some private blockchains out there as well. Um, Things like Monero, things like Zcash, these are examples of privatized blockchains uh, that actually require a special permission in order to even access the blockchain itself. Um, so unless you're going to get involved with some of these financial advice or financial service companies, uh, you're probably not going to have to worry about these blockchains as much. Okay, so let's say you've gone out now and you've invested in some sort of crypto asset. What exactly do you do with it? Well, you have two different options as far as the storage of your asset. The first one, and probably one of the most common, is something that's referred to as hot storage. This is online storage. Um, you can sign up for uh, a crypto asset wallet on many different um, uh, providers and services, and essentially what you would do is you would keep your crypto assets in this online storage uh, for use on a day-to-day -day basis or for transferring of these uh, crypto funds. Uh, the, the biggest downside to the hot storage system is that it is, you know, as secure as we've been talking about these systems are, uh, it is still potentially susceptible to hacking or to malicious intent. Uh, so if you don't want to keep it online in a hot storage, what other option do you really have? Well, the other option that's available as far as crypto asset storage is something that's referred to as cold storage. So what you would do in a cold storage situation is when you acquire a crypto asset, it has its own unique code. Um, every, every Bitcoin every ether has its own unique ID uh, and what you would do is you would store that ID either on a extremely private server um, 
say a USB drive. You could even write this code down on a piece of paper and store it in a fireproof safe uh, for use at a later point in time. The problem with cold storage uh, of your crypto assets is they are not readily available, which means if you need to access that crypto asset today, it may take some time in order for that to be available for you. So depending on uh, what you intend to do with your crypto assets over time will depend on what the best storage method is for you. Honestly, it seems like you should probably diversify like in everything else and probably have a little bit in hot storage and a little bit in cold storage. That way you know you're protected in case anything were to happen uh, on either side. While you chew on this massive amount of new information I've provided you during today's conversation, I'd like you to join me in taking a look forward at something that's been proposed as one of the best uh, future business models for the blockchain system. So if we go back to looking at Ethereum, we remember that they have something called dApps or distributed apps. And one of the most commonly talked about dApps out there is something that's referred to as a smart contract. So these smart contracts work like this. Both parties that set it up would agree on the terms. If XYZ is met, blank amount of currency is going to be paid to that account. So the benefit here is that the contract once put in place is completely autonomous. And the way that you could benefit drastically from this comes probably not all that far in the future uh, when we're looking at the prospect of fully autonomous self-driving cars. Let's say you go out there and you buy yourself an autonomous car. You can set up a series of smart contracts um, that would be for things like uh, if the gas tank is empty, the car would drive to the filling station and it would fill itself up. If the car required an oil change, it would drive itself to the repair shop and it would have the oil change performed. Same as uh, any other automotive repair or tire repair or anything. And as the car continues to run itself and maintain itself, eventually that car is going to earn enough money for you to buy a second car. So once you buy the second car, you set up the same series of smart contracts using that second car and allow it to go on repeat. In no time, you'll be looking at a fleet of fully autonomous self-driving cars uh, that are essentially paying for themselves. And the beauty uh, part about all of it is that with this blockchain system, everything is already pre-set up, everything is autonomous, and because of the decentralized system, it's impervious or almost impervious to any form of hacking. So you don't have to worry about somebody messing with your business before it has the chance to even get off the ground. I really do hope that I'm presenting this information in a manner that you can truly see the benefits of this blockchain style system uh, and by association uh, these crypto assets. Now I'd just like to remind everybody out there, I am not a financial advisor, I am not an investment advisor, uh, I'm not here to tell you how to invest your money. What I'm here to do is to uh, invoke some curiosity as well as give you some insight and some additional information on something that maybe you didn't know very much about previously. 
So if you or somebody you know is planning on investing in some crypto assets, I implore you, please, please, please make sure you do an abundance of research. Don't get yourself into a hole that you can't climb back out of. Uh, this landscape is drastically changing constantly. So make sure you educate yourself, uh, reach out to people that uh, do this as a profession and, and seek some advice before you, uh, you know, invest your hard-earned money into something that could potentially be a net loss for you. All right. Um, I think that that's probably a good place uh, to stop for today. I'd again like to thank everybody out there for listening in this week. I certainly hope that you've all gained some new knowledge and insight on crypto assets. Uh, and as usual, I'd like to invite you to come on back next week as we look into yet another intriguing and exciting subject. Our Instagram and our email are located in the episode description, so please feel free to reach out with any comments, questions, or concerns that you might have. Uh, if you enjoyed this, episode, this week's episode, please consider liking, please consider sharing. Um, if you or anybody you know uh, would like to be on the podcast, please feel free to reach out via email or Instagram. I'd be happy to hear from you. Remember to keep asking questions, always keep learning, and have a great week, everybody.